Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Broadcasting from the studios of 2SCR 107.3, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And you can hear us right across Australia on the Community Radio Network or on your device wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Shane Anderson and today we have a special guest with us. Anique Cojon is senior reporter for French newspaper Le Monde. She's also chair of the committee for the apologies, if I don't pronounce this right, Pre-Albert Lantre, which is Parfait. Perfect. <laughs> the French equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. Her reporting spans many decades and conflicts. Her 2013 book, Gaddafi's Harim, uncovered the systematic rape and torture of women and girls during Gaddafi's regime in Libya. Anik has also looked at the way rape is used as a political weapon during the Syrian civil war. She's got a new book. It's called I Would Not Have Arrived There If 27 Women Tell, which is a series of interviews with prominent women who describe the events that led them to where they are today. She joins us now to talk about her career of telling women's stories, especially in places where people don't want them to be told. Anik, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So we were talking before about how You've really built your career telling women's stories, but you don't really view them as women's stories as such. Could you could you explain? Yes, I don't think it's women's issue when I look at what how the women suffered during the war or during an earthquake, for instance. I've read so many pieces which were supposed to be pieces of very good journalism and from journalists that I do admire very much. It could be journalists writing about the Vietnam War, that's a long time ago, but also journalists writing about different other other wars. They have a huge reputation and they write terribly well. But um, I suddenly realized that you, you could read 300 pages without having even heard or read the name of a woman. Uh, it's just as if they were investigating or reporting on the planet of men without any women at all. And I'm so surprised and I'm so shocked because I think writing about women at war, for instance, or women suffering under an earthquake, uh, it's not women's issues. You, you know, when you write about war, you don't write about men's issues. So it's it's really, I think, feminism. Well, I, I call myself a feminist, of, uh, I would say, of course, but but it's a part of human rights. And uh, and writing about um, women, it's writing about how the world is advancing and moving, etc. Yeah, so could you maybe describe your role at Le Monde a little bit? So you have covered a lot of wars, but you're more of a reporter at large? Yes, uh, I think that may be the best definition. Of course, when I was a... Uh, I, I've been a journalist for a long, very long time. I was 23 when I... Um, was hired at Le Monde. Someone uh, wanted to hire me as a <laughs> reporter at large, or I should 
I could have become a chief of something, you know, but I wasn't <laughs> interested in that and I wanted to explore the world and especially not to be specialized, which is very complicated, in fact, not to be specialized at all, if, especially in a newspaper like mine where everybody is very, very uh, specialized and uh, is very good in its field. It's supposed to be the best in France in its field. So uh, when I'm on duty for Le Monde, I, I could be sent in Afghanistan to write a profile and, 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 and I was sent uh, I don't know, to Pakistan for a mission for uh, uh, doctors without borders. And then in 2011, there was the earthquake in Haiti. And each time I'm supposed to write a long piece, mostly featured, you know, um, as if I knew very well the country, which I don't. So I'm always scared. It does, it does sound like a lot of pressure, but at the same time, it does seem like every young journalist's dream job. Yes, Yes, it was, that was my dream. So I can't, I can't deny that it's exactly what I love, what, what I do love. But um, yes, it's it's always caring, and you feel a big responsibility because you want the experts um, appreciate your work, and at the same time, you need to have a completely fresh eye. Let's go back to when you were twenty-three and you were just starting. Yes. Did you have it in your mind that you wanted to see how all these world events were being experienced by women or was it something you no. just realized as you were going that no, no one was telling these stories you know I was I was raised by, uh, in a family where there were, I had two two brothers and we were raised exactly the same way there was an equality in our in our family so I didn't have the feeling that there were lots of inequalities and I had to fight for that it's little by little it's step by step that I realized there were so many so many inequalities, sexual inequalities in the world, and that they were, uh, the, it was such a huge injustice, maybe the biggest injustice in the world. I realized going to Afghanistan, to Pakistan, to the, uh, other countries in the Middle East, that it was just bad luck to be born a girl most of the places. It's just bad luck. So it's realizing that you, you, you really get obsessed by the fact that there's not so much talk about that. That should be front page of the newspaper. That should be headlines. And it's never. Yeah, what's interesting about that is it's women are treated as if they're invisible in these situations. Yeah. But Absolutely. yet you say that women are the people who suffer most during war. Of could course. You, could you explain that? Of course, you know, and, and they take care of the families also. In fact, they do lots of things. And uh, most of the times uh, war reporters uh, were used to go to, well, to describe the war itself as uh, uh, battles. Uh, so they go to see the warriors. They go to interview the, uh, the generals and the head of states, etc. It happens that most of the time they are men. But if you investigate, really, you understand that women do also a lot of things. I discovered that uh, during the revolution and the war in Libya, for instance, they were giving lots of in information to NATO. Uh, they were uh, preparing lots of things. They were transporting the weapons and the and, and guns, etc., in the in the cars. Well, do, doing very very many things. And so you just have to dig a little more and to go to them and to have in mind that it's important to talk about them in the war, but also they suffer a lot. 
this question of, of rape as a weapon of war also it's a huge issue now it's a, a little more discussed than it used to be before uh, even a couple of years ago and even now it's still silence uh, because they don't talk and why would, would, would they talk to reporters because they are afraid to talk about that in their family uh, it's uh, you know they are guilty for being victims. It's double punishment all over the world. But especially, it was a case in Libya. I discovered that in Syria. It's a case in Iraq. It's a case in Congo. So many women are raped, which is just such an injustice, you know. And once you realize these kind of things, um, you, you really feel that you have to talk about that. You have to make headlines about that. At least it's becoming to be, it's becoming to be an issue, but it was not a couple of years ago. Yeah, what was it like when you were first pitching those stories to your editors? Were people receptive to telling these stories? Well, I didn't pitch like, uh, I'm going to investigate about the rape because I didn't even know there were so many rapes in Libya. But that time, um, at least I was very... Um, very clear about my uh, my goal. I asked to go to Libya uh, during the revolution. It was at the end of the revolution. So I just asked a foreign desk to investigate about women, especially. The head of the foreign desk at that time wasn't very um, delighted, I guess, that I wanted to go to Libya. Two men were already there, you know, so why would they send another person? And when I said, you know, I'm going to investigate about women, he said, okay, oh, you know, in his mind, it was just, oh, it's only women. You know, it's not so, such a big piece. And in fact, when I arrived, uh, immediately was uh, um, uh, Gaddafi was immediately taken and uh, captured and killed. And so I had to This was in 2011? 2011. And uh, um, I discovered that they had played a big part in the revolution and in the war. And even a rebel told me it was our secret weapon. And when I, I interviewed some women, uh, one of them told us, you know, women had a special account with Gaddafi. And at that time, I didn't know what it meant totally. A special account. I mean, men also had a special account, you know, to, with Gaddafi. So it was very strange. And someone had told me, a Libyan woman that I had met just before leaving, told me, well, there has been lots of rapes, but nobody will talk to you about that. And it happened. It's too long to explain in details uh, how I met a young woman, very young woman. She was 22, but um, she was totally lost in the in this crowd and telling me I would like to uh, be happy and party with uh, all the, these people in the street who are so happy that Gaddafi has been killed. But I can't um, because I can't explain my suffering. And we talked a lot. And she explained to me that she had been raped. And I was very surprised she would confess that. But then she said, I've been right by Gaddafi himself. And I was struck, you know, it was just unbelievable. She was 15 at that time. She was a young woman, a young girl, a school girl. Um, and she had been uh, chosen to give a bouquet to the guide of the revolution, you know, when he was visiting a school as his was doing that very often. And she was very afraid, but, but very honored also to be chosen as a pretty girl to offer a bouquet. He looked at her in a bizarre way, put a hand 
on her shoulder and another hand on her head. And she didn't know at that time that was a signal for his bodyguards to say, this one is going to be mine. And so the next day, after this big party at school, uh, his bodyguards, who happened to be female, you know, because he was always presenting himself surrounded by women, female bodyguards, saying, you know, I'm a feminist. And in fact, he was a predator and he was choosing girls everywhere, in school, in universities, in villages, etc. And he's been doing that for 42 years. And uh, that explains a lot how he worked and how he controlled the entire country for such a long time, uh, raping lots of people, lots of women, but also trying to get the, the, um, the wives or the daughters of his ministers, of his generals, of uh, lots of uh, uh, important um, leaders of corporate firms, etc., etc. And the secret was so uh, intense, was so important. Uh, rape is such a taboo that nobody could talk about that. And so... I decided after having written a piece on that to to write a book to come back and take a, a, a lease from my a leave from my newspaper and come back to Libya. Let's talk about uh, your book Gaddafi's Harem. So you you mentioned Soraya, the main the main character, the protagonist of your book. Can you talk me through a bit your process as a journalist? How many people did you interview? How long did you spend with people? Um, were there any kind of ethical questions involved? Oh, lots of ethical questions also. And uh, I'm always obsessed, especially by the protection of my sources. And of course, the protection of Soraya was very important. So, of course, it is not her name. Uh, she has a, a real name. And of course, um, we help her uh, to hide uh, after the book was uh, published and even when I was investigating because we were so much afraid that she would be noticed and um, she would uh, be she would have some repercussions of so the, there was uh, a risk to her for, yes. for speaking to you she may yes have... probably probably uh, this, uh, it is the case for lots of women uh, talking maybe not by the authorities uh, but that would be by their family for so I yeah uh, it was um, the case, it was, well, she was probably um, in danger with people who still supported Gaddafi. He was dead, but still some people were very anxious that some uh, truth concerning him and his life in, these, uh, in his basement or his, in, in his fortress and what was happening in the basement would be undercover. So that, my, that was my first concern, uh, Soraya. And then, of course, um, I saw her. I spent uh, more than two months in Tripoli, meeting her every night so we could talk a lot, a lot, details, etc. And then I went to check, uh, tried to check everything she had told me and tried to, oh, I met her father. I went where in the school where she was uh, taken by Gaddafi. I went in the villages. I met some other people. And then, of course, I went, uh, wanted to understand how the system was working and tried to meet maximum of people. It was not easy. People were very concerned their family would know or the uh, the Qadafist would uh, learn that they 
the talk. And you know, it's it's been now um, seven years or eight years, and I was sure there would be lots of books on this question, and there haven't been other books. Which does that does that tell you that there's still that silence around what was happening? It it is very strange. It's it means that women didn't talk. Afterwards, they prefer to disappear now. Some have come back to their family. Some have have been killed. It's a fact. Be, uh, women, lots of women uh, surrounding Gaddafi have, be, have been killed when he was escaping, uh, and some of them have traveled now in Beirut or they are in Egypt or they are in Tunisia, but try to disappear completely in the public eyes. So it's really. It's still bizarre for me to to understand that there's no much so much talk about uh, this huge scandal it was, but it's a question of life and death for lots of people. Yeah, and now that it has been seven years um, since the fall of the regime, have you spoken to Soraya since? Like, do you know how these women are moving on? Oh well, all of them have been destroyed. It's very complicated, and Soraya herself doesn't know how to deal with life. Uh, sometimes she's very down and depressed. Sometimes she's kind of excited. And it's the same for lots of uh, women who can't have a normal love, life afterwards. Some I ha- don't have any news, you know, they just disappeared totally. So it's all these women have been traumatized. And it's, uh, it's something which happened to the majority of women who've been raped in any cases. It's very complicated to reconstruct themselves, to rebuild them, themselves. This is why it is so important to talk about this issue, to discuss, to write articles about that, so that people know that it's a, it's a normal issue. And it's a, it's a scandal, but it is an issue we have to discuss. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to For the State on 2SCR 107.3, where we're chatting to veteran Le Mans journalist Anique Cojon. Now, Anik, your latest book, I Would Not Have Arrived If, um, it has a French title, which I've been mangling before we started recording. Um, You take a look at feminism and women's issues a little bit closer to home. So it involves a series of interviews with prominent women about the decisions and the events that drove them to where they are today. Yes. So you've gone from women who are oppressed to, and like whose stories people don't want to tell. And you've moved to women whose voices are perhaps a bit more recognizable, but maybe whose stories aren't being told in the way they would like them to be told. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it could be. Uh, You know, these women all are very, very um, prominent or very well known. So I guess it's easier for them to talk now. Um, When you are 15, 20, you don't know at all what's going to be your life. And you, it's, uh, it's like, um, well, it's, it's enormous and you don't know which direction to take, etc. But when you are 50, 60, 70, 80, uh, like Vanessa Redgrave, for instance, or uh, like Evansler, uh, or like, um, I don't know, um, John Bays or uh, Patti Smith, uh, all these kind of uh, women in different fields of poets or writers or musicians, etc. It's very interesting to look back and um, and think of the, the girl they were when they were 15, 
fifteen also, and what uh, what they had to survive, how they had to fight. All these women made a name um, and succeeded in a in a world where rules have been made for and by men. So they had to fight all of them, uh, even if they declare themselves feminist or not. This is not the question, in fact. Uh, and uh, and it's very interesting. And they're choosing women because, of course, I interview men also with lots of pleasure. But uh, all the interviews of women make sense. And when you read them one by one, in fact, they, you discover a kind of a sorority and of kind of common uh, path. And, um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think one of the things for me when I'm hearing women's stories about kind of, especially in the workplace and you have these moments where someone says something and it clicks and you're like, Oh, that's, that's happened to me. I know exactly what that feels like. Did you have that? Yes. When you were interviewing these women? All the times. So as different as they are, uh, there's uh, one which is a, a sociologist, ethnologue, who went to Africa such a long time ago uh, with uh, Levi Strauss. Um, and uh, of course, he was looking for someone um, very intelligent, very bright to go to Africa because to make some research. But he was looking for a man. And she was a candidate and he just couldn't believe that. And he was supposed to be such a great man, very, very well-known, very respected. But, oh, my God, she's a woman and he wanted a man. And and uh, the, even Brigitte Bardot, uh, who is this actress, you know, she's now 80, 84. And um, she hated the cinema. She was the, one of the biggest actresses in the world. I mean, the most well-known among the French actresses. And she tell me how she hated the, the world of the cinema cinema and they had to kick her bottom to go to a premiere and she 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 was getting sick each time it was the beginning of a movie etc and she decided to stop at 38 when she was 38 to take care of the animals and it has been her her cause since that time but that was very very fascinating and you also you know on a 27 women I interview for this book, there must be a third of them have been attacked uh, sexually. And they, they, they talk about that uh, very sincerely. And this is just unbelievable. And some people ask me, well, did you choose them also for this reason? Of course not. But just think of society and probably it represents well, the reality, and it's it's proven, in fact, that one third uh, of women in the world have been or will be sexually attacked once in their life. And I think that is a conversation that is starting to happen a lot more now in the West, following Which the Me Too good. movement. Have you noticed your journalism has has changed after Me Too? Yes, in all the newspaper, I guess, but especially in mine, we, uh, the editor in chief, immediately decided to create what he called a, a task force. You know, um, a group of journalists uh, investigating on these questions and trying to 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 go deeper in the in the reality and to describe what what's happening. Is there sexual harassment or aggression in the hospitals and uh, the medicine school, uh, which is two? 
in fact, uh, it's a very machist uh, middle um, area. Um, what about uh, the trade unions, the political parties in France, uh, the members of the parliaments also? But what's happening in schools? What's happening in huge party, huge concerts? What's happening in the uh, in the cinema industry, etc.? And we worked on all these questions. And uh, very recently, we published a, a series of uh, reports about that. And now we feel very much more concerned and there's a lot of you know there, there's been in, in, in France uh, this table figure which uh, was published uh, a couple of weeks ago saying that there has been more than uh, 20% more uh, aggression sexual aggression in France in 2018 well reported but it's not that they are more than be better uh, than before but it's just that people talk about that and they are not uh, afraid anymore to go to the police and this is because we we are more open on all these subjects and because the press does a job how does that make you feel when you compare that to in your 20s and you're reading all this journalism of all these events and women are missing from it. And now there's this wave of coverage yes. where people are actively looking for women's stories. Yes, I think it's wonderful. I'm so I'm so happy with that. You know, it's, it's going to be uh, just normal to, to try. And every, every, everybody feels that it he has or he or she has something to do um, for this movement and to increase this movement and feel responsible for that. And I hope the men are feeling the same, you know, than women. And when I talk to kids at school, it's it relies on young boys also to make things change. So I'm very happy the, the press at least become open to this movement and don't think that if there is, it has a desk which is called women's issue. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's over the there part. in the corner. No, no, no. It's not on the corner anymore. It has to be front page and it has to be headlines. You did, you did mention in an interview that your colleagues have said to you to stop, stop reporting on women's issues. Like, give it, a, <laughs> give it a rest for a little bit. What do you say to that? Oh, I was upset, you know, and I was kind of a, a bit discouraged thinking, oh, they don't have understood, they don't have understand anything, you know, how could they? And at that time, in, in fact, it was a year what I had, I had done only two big reports about, on, about women, you know, so it was so unfair and so ridiculous. But in fact, I, I also remember someone uh, telling me to, it's you you've done a terrible um, a f fabulous job a beautiful job i had written about the rapes in in syria which was really difficult to do but but please don't become a specialist a specialist of uh, uh, rapes in war zones and you know he was thinking for for my good he was telling that for for me for my reputation that tells a lot about how it was it used to be considered to write on that subject so it's changing it's becoming cool and uh, and good and uh, it kind of fashionable to write about that well well done i mean uh, i um, i'm very happy for that uh, but i hope uh, we are going to to continue, of course. Uh, when I read the Australian press, uh, 
every day I see lots of men at the front pages, you know, the politicians, etc. Even if you have some fabulous uh, female politicians, but still. And the number of times I've seen also uh, uh, reports about uh, sexual aggressions, um, not only in the church, but, uh, but, but of course in, uh, in trade unions or in political parties, uh, just unbelievable. So let's go on. Um, so one final question for you. I just want to know if you could give yourself some advice, if you could go back in time and tell your 23-year-old self some advice about making it as a journalist, what would you tell women out there? <laughs> That's very, very complicated. Why, which advice? Thinking of the situation of women, I think I, would, I could have done more maybe at the beginning. But at that time, I was not so much concerned. I always felt a responsibility to talk about women in any cases. But maybe I should have, I should have begun earlier. I could have been maybe more audacious in my newspaper. I was a kind of shy at the beginning. You know, there was a huge majority of men with a, a black tie. You know, they were very elegant, very strict, etc. And I was kind of blushing sometimes, you know, when they were talking to me. Uh, so I think I, I should have been stronger. But, you know, you, you can't change. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was, I was very young. I was one of the youngest uh, at the newspaper for a long time. It has changed now, of course. But, uh, but so I was uh, uh, probably a bit shy. No, I, I think I, I did everything with a lot of sincerity. And I was so much, uh, there is so much patience in the way I, I do my job that I probably I couldn't do it very differently. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, you just heard from Anik Kojon, senior reporter for French newspaper Le Monde, on this edition of Fourth Estate. Don't forget, you can catch up with us on our podcast edition. Just search Fourth Estate in your preferred podcast app. Until next time, I'm Shane Anderson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>